This is the second Sunday in Lent, and I explained last week on the first Sunday in Lent why we say in Lent instead of of Lent. So, uh, just so that you know, Sundays are not part of Lent, in Lent, and that's why we say in Lent. But the great thing about that is, is that if you've undertaken some hair-raising austerity for the season of Lent, you get a buy on the Sunday. Some of you may think that's cheating, and if you do, proceed. So always during Lent, I recapitulate each Sunday about sort of the progress from Ash Wednesday of where our focus has been. On Ash Wednesday, we focus on three themes that will come up in some way or another through the readings that we hear, the lections that we hear on the Sundays in Lent. And then we'll read some of them again uh, during Holy Week and at the Great Vigil of Easter so that we have some idea of the continuity of God's salvation history. So the focus on Ash Wednesday is on repentance, (coughs) reconciliation, and godly motives. How do we change the direction in which we're looking for happiness? How do we understand that we are to be reconcilers to the world and to each other in the community of faith we call the church. As Paul says on Ash Wednesday, since we are ambassadors for Christ, God is making his appeal through us. And so by virtue of that, we understand that we have a role to play. And finally, Lent is a time to remind ourselves... Uh, We're not going to do a perfect job with this, but we need to know that we need to have clean motives. I get up every morning and I say this to myself. I'm going to try to begin the day believing that we are all people of goodwill and that we mean what we say. Uh, Most of us, when we try to do that, are bitterly disappointed sometimes before we even get out of the morning. But it's the default position for Christian people. And to understand that we're to have godly motives. And I remind you again about Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who said that uh, if we believe that each one of us is made in the image and likeness of God and that we possess the spirit of God, we should treat one another with the same respect that we treat the Blessed Sacrament at the Eucharist. So godly motives are important in our spiritual journey and they have an enormous positive effect on our emotional, spiritual, and mental states. And last Sunday, we focused every first Sunday in Lent on the temptation of Christ in the desert. And as Father Thomas Keating says, Jesus was tempted around all of the things that were tempted around the three energy centers, security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. And that's the location for how we work out our irrational programs for happiness. And Lent is a time to think about those things and to figure out how we might uh, do it a little differently, look in a different direction. Today we have the establishment of the covenantal relationship between uh, God and the people of God, the people of the covenant in Genesis with Abram. And then we, uh, in the gospel, have Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem and uh, also an indication of now 
how he has a plan B for his mission. He had plan A, and plan B has uh, now got to be employed because plan A did not turn to work out as he thought it might. In the Hebrew Bible, uh, in the Hebrew language, uh, there are enormous number of word plays and puns in the text in Hebrew. And so little changes in w one character or one emphasis is that you have to know Hebrew in the sense that it's a consonantal language. It has no vowels. So that means that you have to know what the vowels are that you put in. And we have been given some, ben some help and benefit uh, from a group of Jewish scholars who lived in the uh, fir first century AD, first uh, thousand, thousand AD. And they produced what is known as the Masoretic Text. And in the Masoretic text, they pointed the Hebrew characters with some symbols that you know in advance and get, put the vowels in the words. So Abram means the father, exalted father in Hebrew. And Abraham means father of a multitude. So he gets renamed in the course of his obedience to the covenantal relationship that he establishes with God today in this text. Abram is uh, listening to God. He has been faithful to God. And God tells him that they're going to, let's make a covenant. And here's why being something of a student of the Bible is important. We have some very detailed instructions that are given to Abraham about how to make this sacrifice how you cut the, the, the bulls in half and the other in half, but don't cut in half the birds and arrange them this way. That presupposes that, of course, these rituals had been done before we read about them in the text. This is not the first time this sort of sacrifice is being made. So Abram does this obediently, and then we have the story of at night the flame passing over the pot of flame, and all these uh, sacrifices are incinerated, they're burned up, which is just the way they did it in the uh, ancient cult of sacrificing Judaism. So he makes this covenant, but the important thing about this is that it has some continuity with what we read from the prophet Joel much later, but in, in, uh, in the Ash Wednesday liturgy. For God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and re relents from punishing. Biblical scholars who study this in ancient Israel focus on the fact that there is a reciprocal nature to the covenant that's been established between Abram and God, which means there are consequences for both sides if the covenant is broken. But the affirmative side of this is that we learn something that is very helpful to us, both personally, internally, and as a community. And that is that God remains faithful. God is not a cutter and a runner. And God is with us 
even in the midst of circumstances where we cannot feel it, do not believe it, do not care whether God is present or not. And Abraham remains faithful. Paul is going to take this theme up and say, Abraham's faith was reckoned to him as righteousness, which is what it says in the text from Genesis today. So faith is central to our self-understanding as Christian people. Now, a lot of times we forget get this. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. And all of our lives, we, we, we strive to have certainty about what it is that we should do, how we should live, what's going to happen to me, and so on. Thomas Merton, in a recording I listened to about three weeks ago, said to his novices at the Trappist Monastery in Gethsemane back in the early 1960s, he said, when you say in your private prayer or your musings, what is my fate? Or rather to say it the other way, what is God's will for me? That's sort of a pious ask. But the real ask is, what is my fate? I want to know. I want to have some certainty. And this is particularly important uh, in our culture and has been for maybe 300 years since the beginning of the Enlightenment because we believe that we have some species of certainty through science about what's true. So those areas we don't, we get a little upset, we want to have some degree of certainty. And Abraham had faith. He would have, if you, in the Hebrew Bible, it's called immuna, which means trust. I'm trusting in God. I have faith. And by virtue of that, I'm able to uh, move forward. So remember that distinction. Faith and certainty uh, is an important distinction to make and to remember. So Abram becomes Abraham because of his faith, and he's now a father, the father of a multitude, and his wife Sarah, who has never had any children, has a baby when she's 75. And as my Old Testament professor at Neshota used to say, you can believe that if you want to. <laughs> the point, of course, of the text is that God is present and faithful and is uh, working his purposes out with, out with us as we cooperate with the divine initiative. And so Sarah's son is Isaac. Remember the three angels? They come and visit. And they, Abraham, Abraham and Sarah are under the tree. And these three visitors come. And one of the angels, they're angels, and one of the angels says to Sarah, you're going to have a baby. She says, I'm 75, and she laughs. And the angel looks at her and said, why are you laughing? So in the Hebrew text, it says, she laughs. Then we go down a few paragraphs, and we get to, she has the baby, 
and the baby's named Isaac, which in Hebrew means God laughed. See, it's important to know some of these things. And if you file that on ice, you never know when you might be able to amaze somebody who's <laughs> vaguely interested in the biblical text. But the takeaway from the reading from Abram and about Abram is that God is steadfast and faithful to us. When we say God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us, this is not from some remote location. And you come to realize that through touching God's spirit that is within you, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you. So today, Jesus decides or has undertaken plan B. Plan A was to send the 70, you know, the disciples and the apostles out to preach the nearness of the kingdom of God and to tell them what God's purposes are for establishing his reign on earth. And they come back, and uh, it was mostly a bust. It didn't work. I always like uh, in one of the synoptic gospels where Jesus gives instructions to the apostles and the disciples and says, if this village will not receive you or listen to you, you raise up your heel and knock the dust off of your feet as you go away from the village. And I always thought, boy, that, that must be a rough gesture. And then I realized it's still around in some form in the, near, in the Middle East because um, I remember when the Iraq war began and uh, George Bush was in Iraq in Baghdad and he was having a press conference and a number of the Iraqi journalists took their shoe off and did this. You don't want that. So when Jesus said... Raise up your shoe and not, or your sandal and knock the dust off. He was saying, just tell them the score. But what he's really doing is offering a very, very important message to the people of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not the capital of Israel. Caesarea was the capital of Israel. Jerusalem was the center of the cult of the practice of Judaism in the temple. And so he is saying to Jerusalem, uh, what God's purposes have been all along with this city and with this people are, is to protect them in the same way that a mother hen protects her chicks. It's one of the great uh, additions of the revised common lectionary that we have some of this feminine imagery now in the Sunday readings. They were not uh, paid attention to uh, to the degree they should have been. And we know, if you talk to anybody who's been through this, a, a rural person who lives on a farm and has experienced a fire in the barnyard of any kind, they have found when the smoke clears, uh, a mother hen with her wings spread burnt to a crisp and the chicks run out from underneath. They have been protected by her. And Jesus uses this image about what God wants to do for each of you. And what God yearns to do, part of his keeping of the covenant, to unconditionally love, accept, and forgive you. And Jesus is speaking about the importance of how we understand God's vocation. 
Now, what this is about and why it relates to uh, Lenten themes is that he is speaking to a Jerusalem that is very self-satisfied, very smug. They believe they've hung the moon. But remember this. Luke is writing his gospel between 85 A.D. and 90 A.D. The Roman army came from Caesarea to Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and burned the temple down and destroyed it, destroyed a large part of the city. Most of the inhabitants of Jerusalem fled the city after 70 A.D. So Luke is writing with that knowledge And so embedded in this reading are things that give us the indication that he knows that because it's one of those things where implicit is, well, you know now. You know now. This is a reminder to everybody who feels smug about things or self-satisfied. You know, we live in a culture that values safety over adventure. And so we always believe that we don't take any chances or we don't do anything like that or I have arrived and I don't need to worry about that kind of thing. It's kind of a not-in-my-backyard outlook in some ways. So we believe that we don't, we don't need to do that. We don't need to be concerned about the future in that sense. I was reading about four or five years ago. Well, I remember this 25 years ago in California. The state legislature uh, sought to pass some uh, resolutions or laws that had to do with uh, finding or creating programs to assess pe- to assist people uh, with low self-esteem. Right? Well, back then, I guess most of the baby boomers who they were addressing that maybe needed a little work on self-esteem. But subsequent, subsequent studies have been made with Gen X and Gen Y. You know, we're all in these generational things. And the Gen Ys particularly believe, don't have any problem with low self-esteem. <laughs> They're perfectly content uh, with, how, with how things are going for them, except when things occur where they don't have the certainty but mainly they're not struggling or or seeking therapy for low self-esteem in droves. I told you about the article about a year or a year and a half ago in the Atlantic Monthly, How to Send Your Child into Therapy. The woman who wrote wrote the article is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She said, when I got out and graduated and I did all my hours that you have to do to get licensed, I opened up, hung out my shingle, and the first seven or eight people that came to me were absolute textbook. All the stuff that I had learned in school. And then patient number nine showed up. A young, attractive woman 26 years old. She came in. She sat down. And she said, I have wonderful parents. I love my parents. 
I love my brothers and my sisters. I have a great job. I love my apartment. But I'm very dissatisfied. And I don't know what's wrong. And I need some help in discovering what that might be. And then she said, I began now to have a whole host of people this age and with the same complaint. And the conclusion that she came to was that maybe we're doing too good a job raising the kids. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to have a world of people who have no neurotic conflicts of any kind? Maybe you never would have had Beethoven <laughs> or Van Gogh, right? I'm not being glib. You know, there's something about having to uh, come to grips with things, lack of certitude. Walking home instead of being driven home after school every day. You know, I don't want to get into one of these two miles in the snow stories, but you know, you know what I mean. So your expectations and what you think you deserve get ratcheted up as a result of this. So it's very hard to learn humility. It's very hard to, to understand yourself very hard to know that you have to develop the right kind of self-regard as you live and that's a, a lifetime process because when you do you become an instrument of healing in all relationship and everybody whose lives you touch because you know yourself and the better you know yourself the better you're able to cope with the reactivity and anxiety of other people you know so when you get into a jam up like that, no amount of understanding somebody else, no amount of listening to the story, you need to work on yourself. So that you're not nicked by what goes on in, in the ramming around inside the triangle. And it may sound funny to you, but that's exactly what Jesus is talking about today when he speaks and weeps over Jerusalem. You're very self-satisfied about what it is you're doing. You're not paying attention to the signs. And Luke, in retrospect, is reproducing that saying of Jesus in the midst of a, a community that he's part of that has experienced the complete crack-up. And what kind, of, what kind of sense are we going to make out of that? It's never too late because what did we learn in Genesis? That God isn't a cutter and a runner. And that's the takeaway we get for, for this Sunday from, from these readings and why it's so important for Lent. Because if you begin a process of self-examination and repentance and understand your role as a reconciler and work on your motives, you become an instrument of bringing the values of the kingdom of God present now. So give thanks for that great gift and for the fact that God is with you always. Amen.